You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Strong Citizens Week here at Strong Towns. We're focusing on people who have chosen to live with a Strong Towns kind of mindset. There's nobody for me that fits that description more than our guest today, Mr. Money Mustache. He's been featured on CBS News and The New Yorker, on The Huffington Post, and many, many other places. I'm really happy to welcome to the podcast today, Mr. Money Mustache. Welcome. How's it going, Chuck? Thanks a lot, and I'm a big fan of uh, Strong Towns, too. Well, that that means a lot to me. I I really do appreciate that. I, I was going to ask you, do you want me to, throughout the interview here, call you Money, or is it Mr. Mustache, or what's uh, well, the best way? No, it's fine. Like, my real name is Pete, right? So it's uh, <laughs> everyone calls me that once they get over the formalities. You don't go down the street on your bike and someone yells, hey, Money, out the... You know, out the window or anything like that? Uh, if I'm lucky, on a good day, that would happen. Or, hey, mustache. Yeah. But usually it's just Pete. Yeah. Or, hey, All right, get Pete. out of the way. Another one. <laughs> I've been, long been a fan of yours as well. And it's it's fascinating because I started down this Strong Towns journey and then found you along it and thought... I've listened to all these financial people give advice on how to save 5% and here's how to, you know, cut your credit card in, in 18 months. And I thought these people are nuts, but here's a guy who actually gets it. The front of your website has these two terms. It's, it's financial freedom and badassity. And, and I want you to, to tell us what does financial freedom mean to you and how does badassity get you there? Yeah, it's the um, it's not two terms. It's supposed to be one phrase, like financial financial freedom through through badassity. badassity. Yeah, because it's the badassity that lets you get the financial freedom. And what badassity means is, of course, just a made up word, but it means being a badass, which means embracing hardship and getting better at stuff, and stop just being such a comfort oriented sissy like they train us to be in our society. You know, like for example, like a really simple idea of being a badass is like let's say you're a mom and you've got two kids and it's snowing and you got to go get some groceries and then go to a party with them and then uh, maybe your husband has the car for whatever reason and I don't want to make this sound gender stereotypical but you go out and you get the groceries and the kids are in the bike trailer and then you load everything up and maybe you're wearing two backpacks and you show up at the party everyone's laughing and covered with snow that is kind of a embracing of badassity and everybody had a better time than they would have if they had just taken the SUV and your friends have more respect for you and you feel great because you conquered the elements instead of um, retreating from them. And that's the type of person that I seek out in my life. I love people like that. And they happen to usually be more successful in everything else they do, you know, like business and marriage because they're willing to go further and to get stuff done instead of just complaining about the hardships. Right, right. I'm totally with you. I know you're Canadian. I'm from Minnesota. Hey, we can see you from here. You live in the United States now. I, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, were you raised like this? Is this something you, you came to appreciate later in life? What, what was the path that got you to, to badassity? Um, well, I'm not really as badass as I would like to be, but I definitely aspire to the concept. And a little bit of that came from my upbringing. Like my parents were frugal originally by necessity because they grew up in the 1940s and 50s. And then they kept that going through their later lives because it was just necessary. They had four kids and 
going into debt wasn't an option to them. So they set their expenditures to make sure they didn't run out of money and run us out of our house. So that's the uh, upbringing part. And then I think I was born this way as well, like because I did become an engineer out of all the other professions I could have done. And engineers hate waste and they love optimizing stuff. Like to us, it's an art form. It's just beauty when you do something right and you see that there's no waste left over and you think, wow, I designed this amazing car and it weighs half as much as a competition, but it does everything better than the competition to, to an engineer. That's the highest form of beauty. Right, right. Did you did you have one of those grandparents that was like the the old miser curmudgeon kind of guy? <laughs> uh, growing up, I only really knew one of my grandparents because the others died a little earlier, or maybe they had their their kids late or something. Yeah, so yeah. I had a grandmother uh, who went through the Great Depression. She was definitely cheerful, um, but she was also somewhat of a badass. Now that I think of it, like she always did her own groceries. She kept her own apartment even when she was living alone at age 90 and just kept things spick and span and worked hard and kept a very sharp mind right till the day of her death. And she was like, oh, I'll be out of the hospital in no time. I've got to clean up the <laughs> apartment. It's a little messy and my guests are coming over on Sunday. And then she just like finished her life like with that type of attitude right to the last minute. Right. So yeah, I mean, she's definitely an inspiration. Yeah, I I, I was thinking as you're talking about my, my own grandfather, who was kind of had that mentality too. It was sometimes it manifested itself as a pack rat a little bit. He was one of these guys who, you know, lived in a barn during the depression and, and, you know, he did that so he could eat the family he moved in with. He'd like help him work in the fields and stuff. And then they'd feed him. And that was how he, he made things. And, and boy, you know, when I was a, a young formative guy trying to make choices in life, he would always step in and say, Hey, you know, this is, don't do that. That's a waste. And, you know, this is a lot smarter thing to do. And he was kind of a badass now that I think about it. You yeah. Know? These inspirational figures, they really have a big effect on people. And I find kids who grow up with rich kind of consumery parents, they just adopt these behaviors by default, like, oh, daddy's going to give me a new car when I turn 16. And of course, I'm going to have a car when I go to college, because how else do you get around? So you really, uh, we're such a social creature. We pick this stuff up from people. Actually, I wanted to throw one more shout out of badassity to this. Yeah. The dad of one of my, the parents of some of my best friends as uh, as a kid were these immigrants from Holland, you know, and Dutch people are kind of renowned for being hardworking and non no nonsense. So right, right. This one guy is also his name is Pete Pete Princeton, and uh, if he ever hears this, I want to say thanks a lot. He was a real like do it yourselfer. Like he would just take Pete and Corey, his wife would take their kids, my best friends, on these amazing like sailing trips, and they fixed up their own house and they did all their grocery shopping. They were very good financially, even though they were just like a teacher and an X-ray worker. So they were kind of a model of how to do life in an optimized way and like really outdoorsy and super healthy and athletic. So uh, yeah, that that rubbed off on me a lot as a kid too. And I think Pete actually reads Mr. Money Mustache now. So <laughs> <laughs> Sweet, sweet. I, I, I want to talk to you about your house. Pretty much everybody, when they get to be an adult, goes through the, the process of, of looking for a house, whether to rent or to own. You own your house. You don't have a mortgage. I'd like you to talk about the process you went through to pick out your house. What were some of the things that you were looking for? What were kind of the Mr. Money Mustache prerequisites? Right. Well, I've always been a house guy. Ever since I moved out of my parents' house, I had certain opinions of what I wanted, like open spaces and a place to make music where the neighbors wouldn't complain because in my first rentals, the neighbors would complain. 
and stuff like that. So it's evolved over the years. But with the current house, uh, I've really realized what I want is enough space for everything, but not too much. And I really like the sun. And so I wanted the house to be solar lit and solar powered. And that sounds fancy, but all that really means is a bunch of big windows facing south and preferably facing something nice. So the current house, I'd just been shopping around casually for eight years while I lived in the neighborhood. Every time a house comes up, I just take a look. And then this kind of fixer-upper came up that has the south side of it backing onto a park, like a really nice public park with no roads or anything between it. It's just my backyard. And so when that one came up, I thought, oh, that's perfect because I could completely fix it up and put the sunny windows that I wanted and that's the story of why we live here now. It's a project that started in 2013. Still not quite done, but it's really fun to go through the process of working on it so much. Now, I understand that that is a little bit of a downsize, too, going from the, the last house to this one. Is that right? It is, yeah. The last house was like 2,600 square feet of indoor space, including a finished basement, plus a nice two-car garage, plus these nice work sheds in the backyard. So the new place is about half of that. It's got 1532 square feet with no garage and no real work shed. So I did have to compress some of my, my manly belongings like uh, like tools and, and yeah. drums and stuff like that, which is a bit of a hassle, but it's also, it's healthy to not have too much room where you just buy stuff too much, too much. And uh, I'm just building a small studio in the backyard now, like the size of a small two-car garage to um, just to expand just to the right level so I don't have everything piled up under tarps and like lumber and stuff like that. Right, right. You, you've got a little m- little Mr. Mustache too, right? I mean, how, the point you are in your life, most people are saying, let's upsize. Like we got kids now, we got stuff, let, let, we, need a, we need a bigger house. You're going the other way. What's, what's that mindset? I mean, has that worked out well for you? Well, you could think of it back to our first question about the engineer and the optimizing. And uh, originally, my wife and I, we had one kid, just a baby, five months old when we bought that bigger house. And uh, we thought, well, we're going to have two kids, so let's make sure we have enough for everybody. And I was a little bit of an overreaction because my house before that in our string of houses was super tiny. So anyway, uh, we decided later on to have just one kid, and our boy was eight or nine at that time. So we figured when this amazing Parkside house came up that we would keep it at the same size it is instead of expanding it massively. You need less space for one kid than you do for two. And um, we're getting a little better at, at minimizing our possessions. And uh, it's just fun to make the most of your space. So you use the whole house every day instead of having parts that you only use once a month. Right, right. You paid off your mortgage. And in fact, I, I've kind of skipped over the fact that, you know, you're retired. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit about the process of, of paying off the mortgage at a young age. What, what was your goal and, and how'd you go about doing that? Right. A mortgage is really just one place to put your money. And you can also put it into investments like index funds where you own a chunk of the U.S. economy and you get dividends for that. So there's nothing magic about paying off your mortgage. In fact, when I quit working, which was my definition of retiring, uh, I still had a mortgage because it was a low interest rate and then I had more money in, in the stock investments at that time. Then I decided it was just an emotional benefit to transfer money from the stock investments to get the mortgage paid off. But to answer your real question of how you do this, the way you do it is by spending a lot less money than you earn. And uh, the first priority is living well and then the second priority is putting the rest of that money into investments. 
And when you streamline your spending and, and stop thinking of the American middle class as like a deprived situation and realize that it's about 10 times what a human needs to be happy, and human history proves this out, then suddenly you have a lot of surplus and that can go straight to either paying off your mortgage if you like, just send in extra checks, or it can go into stock investing, or it can go in 50-50. I always talk as sort of a beginner step of saving at least half of your take-home pay. If you do that, it takes under 17 years from the first day you start working until the last day you have to work in your life. If you just simply save 50% of your pay, invest it in super boring conservative like Vanguard index funds, and then you're done. And that's roughly what I did. I just saved a bit more because I had an above average income, nothing ridiculous. But so that's how we, my wife and I finished working at, at 30 years old, just before turning 31. Now, most people listening to this, especially those that have not read your blog before, which for crying out loud, people, why are you not reading this blog? They're thinking, okay, th this sounds very nice. Save half of your income. But my gosh, I've got car payments. I've got house payments. I've got groceries I've got to buy. You're not just throwing this out as, uh, as kind of flipping. You're, you're serious about examining every part of your life. Maybe, maybe we can start with transportation. Cause I, I feel like that's maybe the, the primary divergence point between you and most non badass people. Right. Can, and it ties in so nicely with strong towns too. It does. Yeah. It's like basically yeah. a collective insanity that we have it all is. signed up for without even realizing that it's completely bonkers. Well, talk a little bit about how you reach financial freedom with different transportation choices. All right. Well, let's just use this offensive term that you spoke to me a few minutes ago, a car payment. Like, it is ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous yeah. to borrow money for a car. Like, if you don't even have... Like, you shouldn't spend all your money on a car, let alone more than all the money you have. Like, you should take... If you need a car, which should be a last choice, then you should take the amount of money that you're comfortable dropping your checking account balance for that month and spending that on a car. And then it's gone forever and it's going to depreciate. It's going to literally go up in smoke. So uh, you shouldn't be prioritizing fancy cars as part of your lifestyle goals. So that's the first thing that most people do. Most people save about $5,000 a year, but spend 10000 a year driving unnecessarily huge fancy cars around way more than they need to. So that's a, you know, kind of a nice place to start to become a bit less of a preacher about that and be more practical, like go to Craigslist, get yourself like a 2008 Honda Fit, which is a beautiful car, holds five people, goes camping, gets almost 40 miles a gallon. You can get it for about $6,000. It'll last you 20 years and then live close to work. Don't drive all over the place. Get a bike, use it for any trips under three miles and just start thinking about driving as a negative activity that you want to avoid and then only do it when it really brings happiness to your life, like a camping trip or whatever. Do all that stuff and you're already halfway to a 50% savings rate for many of us. And uh, then you can go further, like getting smarter about groceries and incidental expenses and housing expenses. How many miles do you think you drive in a year? Um, it varies. It's probably... Uh, this year I did a couple of trips to Utah from my home in Colorado, which is about... Yeah. A, I think it might be like an 800 mile round trip. So I did kind of 1600 miles of pleasurable road trip driving for camping and snowboarding. And yeah. I do feel guilty about that, but it's a pleasant guilt. I'm like, ha ha ha, isn't it great living in such a rich country that I can just blaze this 250 horsepower <laughs> minivan through the, through the mountains with my friends. And then I think we did about, you know, a couple hundred miles of 
what I call clown driving, which is just driving when you didn't really need to, like uh, under 10 mile distances. And uh, I have a second car for that, like a used Scion hatchback, which is very efficient. So at least it's not totally off the hook to drive that thing. Let's say, take the, take the two trips out. So more or less, I'm going to start at an absurd level, more or less than 10,000 miles a year. Oh yeah, much less than that. Less, more or less than five thousand miles a year. I think this game's already getting tiresome. I'd say <laughs> probably about four hundred miles a year. Four hundred miles a year. year. I think we used right two years ago because I add this all up at the end of each year. Two years ago, yeah, we yeah. used two tanks of gas in the car, so our gas bill was seventy-one dollars for the year. Because and and people who are engineers are saying, well, then why do you have cars at all? And you're totally right. I shouldn't even have cars. Right. But um, but yeah, two tanks of gas for the Scion because gas was three dollars, three fifty back then. Nowadays, yeah. that bill would be like forty bucks for the year. So so you're literally spending zero on car payments. You're oh, spending yeah. less than a hundred bucks on gas a year. I saw that your Geico bill because you posted it is like two fifty a year or something like that. Yeah, um, a bit more than that. It's in the three hundreds. But yeah, for oh, two okay. drivers and two cars with minimal yeah. use. Um, and I'm also not in a big city where there's a lot of smash ups. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, insurance is cheap. Yeah. So, so right there, we just saved a family, you know, 15000 a year. Completely, uh, especially yeah. the higher income families who tend to have these bigger trucks and, and SUVs, which are very costly. Yeah. You replace those auto trips then. And by the way, just as a divergence, I don't know as I've been so proud of myself as when I read your automobile recommendations. Because guess what car I drive? Uh, Honda Fit? A 2008 Honda Fit. Oh, yeah. yeah. A really smart choice. Such a beautiful car. Oh, my gosh. It's an amazing car. And, you know, great gas mileage. You can put the seats down, fit everything in it. I've hauled lumber in a thing. I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's a fantastic car. Yeah, you can actually use that as a one-person hotel, too, if, you're, if you have to travel to one of your speaking <laughs> engagements. Just have a comfortable bed in the back. Yeah. And I have a friend yeah. who lives in the mountains doing that as a snowboard instructor. Nice. <laughs> Sometimes. So, we're 400 miles a, a year in your car, but it's not like you're sedentary. It's not like you sit around. You, you go places day to day. Your kid had to get to school today. You, you're substituting those auto trips with what? Um, well, the biggest thing is a local lifestyle. Like There's always a choice of what you can do. You can choose to have stuff to do on the opposite side of your metro area, or you can find equally or better fun stuff to do locally. So... Mostly it's everything I do is within a mile or two of my house. Like I have a great library. I have amazing collection of friends and all the stores and grocery stores I need to go to are there. And that doesn't really happen by accident, which is why I try to emphasize local life instead of just saying, ride a bike. Because if you just say ride a bike, people are like, well, I'm in Los Angeles and it's the city's 200 miles wide and I have stuff to do all over the place. And I'd be biking like 27 hours a day. So you have to combine like a priority of not making yourself travel all the time because that's not a naturally human activity and then use a bike for those trips and that's more for physical fitness and joy because if I used a car for all my local trips I'd still only use like an extra tank or two of gas per year so it's those two things together valuing locality and kind of thinking of your local area that you live as your true community and that's where you want to find friends and those are the businesses you want to support 
obviously at Strong Towns, we talk a lot about the physical form and the layout of communities. There's got to be some places that are more suited for badassity than others then. I mean, if you're living in the, the cul-de-sac out on the edge of town, this is going to be a lot more difficult than if you're living in a, in a place like you've described with a library and a park and the stores and all that. If I'm starting out in life and I want to be a badass, it, it, is moving going to be maybe a prerequisite for me? Well, moving is a great idea. People should always keep that in mind. Like, you get a new job that's your dream job, but it's 30 miles from home. Of course you should move closer to that job. Like, it's easy to move, even if you have a family, even if you have a house. Uh, but it's even better if you think about this earlier in your life so you can get that dialed down before you have a family. So, yeah, moving is good. But the other thing is, um, and one area where I, my approach differs a little bit from yours with strong towns is, yeah, yeah. like, yeah, we should certainly rebuild our towns and change these urban planning like rules so things can be designed in a non-ridiculous manner in the future. But let's also not use that as an excuse because to use my own neighborhood as an example, I'm the only one sometimes who's walking and I'll get passed by 50 cars just doing stupid one or two mile errands or just like dropping their kids off at the school. Like I'm one of the furthest houses in my school district at about a mile away. And of course we walk because you'd never drive a car one mile, but Almost right. everybody's driving past us, and there's this line of trucks spewing smoke right into the lungs of the children as we as we walk past into the school. I'm like, why? So it's not my neighborhood is fine. Most neighborhoods are fine to right now stop driving and right now start biking and walking. And so do that now. Don't wait for the world to make everything into like lollipop paved unicorn <laughs> right. paths like down right. to the Wizard of Oz's house. Just do it now, and then we'll also fix our cities as we go. Because when you're out there walking and biking, you're an advertisement for the Strong Towns concept. Everybody else in their cars is like, huh, well, I didn't know you could walk here. Yeah. A certain number of people will do that, and that'll change their voting patterns as well. They're like, yeah, I saw some people walking to school, and they look pretty happy, and they're actually a lot more physically fit than me, too. Okay, maybe I will vote for this new arrangement in my city. I do think that it is an advertisement in a sense. And people do look at you like you're crazy. I mean, I ride my bike around here and the drivers get kind of angry. Like, why are you in my space? This is my street. You know, what are you doing here? But I, I don't know. You know, I, I, there's enough people, I think, who kind of follow that, that, you know, I get a little satisfaction from that as well. Like, okay, maybe I'm, you know, at 42, I can still, I can, I can do this fairly easily. You know, maybe I'm making room for people who are, uh, you know, elderly or, or very young and maybe not, you know, as adept at doing this as I am. Yeah, it's. I feel very happy even if I'm the only one biking. But there's often, it changes quick, quickly. Like even since 2001, the amount of people biking to work is up in hundreds of percents. Uh, if you look yeah. at the stats, and especially in these big cities that people say were unbikable, the cities have changed a little bit. But much more important is that the people have changed. So uh, just doing it, going about it politely, like you don't want to be aggressive towards the drivers, but politely and confidently. And yeah. that's how, how you create change is just by being one of these people. I'm sure there's people who are listening who are saying, okay, I'm, I'm with you on the car thing. I'm with you on locating a good space. I'm, 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 I'm maybe going to struggle to do those things, but I get it. You are obsessive about this. I mean, you're obsessive about this to the point where, you know, you, you build your menus around it. You know, the way you consume coffee, for example, all of these things, you've kind of taken it to the point saying like, look, I'm, this is the life I live and it brings me satisfaction. If you're talking to someone who is your average 
slightly overweight, driving the clown car every day kind of American. Where are you telling them to, to start? Well, first of all, that perception of uh, obsessive is something that I, I like to fight. And, and the recent New Please York do. article. Please do. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the recent New York article, New Yorker article about me, once again made that mistake. I am absolutely not obsessive at all. Like, I'm a super casual, like, relaxed, hippie-type guy who lives this crazy decadent lifestyle with, like, intercontinental travel, like, the best food, the nicest house in my entire city, in my opinion. And, like, I just do whatever I want. I buy stuff as if it's free. <laughs> so it's not um, obsessive. It's it's just that I see the waste in things, and then I consciously decide when I want to waste or not. Like, for example, I do eat meat and eggs and stuff. I'm not a vegan. And I know that that's a super decadent way to eat, and it's, like, somewhat unethical. So I do it in moderation, but I'm not, uh, I'm not obsessive about it. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to indulge in you know what other humans do just because i'm i'm up for the big picture enjoying the whole life like i drink beer sometimes i drink too much beer i know that that costs money and it's not the best thing for my health so i do it reasonably so i describe my approach as being slightly less ridiculous than average and i look to people who are more along that spectrum to me for inspiration instead of looking them looking uh, at them with scorn yeah so to answer your question about the the person who is even earlier on this process is just like, look for some ideas and realize that these, this type of lifestyle makes you happier. Like the, the benefits begin immediately. It's not like you wait until you retire and then you're happy. It's like you immediately walk to the store instead of driving the one mile and you feel great the moment you get out that of your front door. So uh, just try it. Try getting, try on the physical side, I would say, is the first thing to do is just get your ass outside in the shoes and find something to do with yourself. And then it starts to become a chain reaction from there. I'm really glad you made that clarification because, and let me, re, let me reflect back to you what you said and you can clarify me. <laughs> Cause I, I heard you say, I, I look at this world and it just seems crazy to me and I'm slightly less crazy than everybody else. But that doesn't make me obsessive or overly frugal or like, you know, some Sunday school teacher who's, you know, walking around wrapping everybody on, on the wrist for running the water an extra five seconds. It's just a paradigm that I view the world through. Is that, is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, it seems pretty reasonable. I mean, the reason you can identify that you're still excessive is to look at the big picture. Most people have a, a scientific model of the earth that is basically them, their peers, and what they see on TV. And then, and if you watch like political debates, that's even worse distorted picture of the world. However, if you study the entire history of the human race, and then the world that was here before that as well, then you get a much more interesting and, and big picture. And you realize this tiny little slice of time where we all started going crazy and going blah, 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 and buying all this stuff. And it's very recent and it's very bizarre and it's a lot like, and I watch a lot of nature videos, it's a lot like these bizarre birds of paradise videos that you see in Madagascar where the birds develop like a crazy elaborate feather pattern and dance. And to them, that's their whole world. They're like, this is how I get a mate. But right. to us, we're like, oh, that's so bizarre. Like the thing has weird clown lips painted on its feathers through yeah, evolution. Yeah. So we are these birds of paradise jumping around doing ridiculous dances and not even noticing how ridiculous we are unless you can zoom back and think about ourselves as a bigger, you know, like a species and 
with these certain social needs and the social needs of what have been manipulated through commerce to make us do some very preposterous things. I, I was in Italy, oh, it was a, over a decade ago now. I was staying with this person there for just a, a brief period of time, and she had a refrigerator that was like the refrigerator for her apartment, which was a, you know, a decent sized flat in uh, Southern Italy. But the refrigerator was like the size of my college dorm refrigerator, you know, that we used to keep drinks in. And that was the whole thing. And, and when she opened it, she op you know, she opened it very quickly and like grabbed what she wanted and closed it very quickly. And it, 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 it kind of stuck with me because I mean, here, you know, we have this huge refrigerator. You open it up and stand there and look at the, what, <laughs> you know, well, let me, let me decide what I want to pull out of here. It does seem to me like we're on like the very far crazy end of decadence in a sense. Yeah. And you can celebrate that. Like, yeah. Uh, while still being slightly less ridiculous than your peers. Like I also have a giant fridge. It's stainless steel. It's got two doors. You open it up, all the seven zones of digital temperature sensing, keep the food <laughs> or different stuff. There's like right. lighting, different zones of lighting in my fridge. But still that thing cost me 700 bucks on Craigslist. I carried it home into my 1999 minivan. And uh, it's a super top-of-the-line Energy Star rated one, so it uses less energy than other fridges. So I get this much more than your Italian lady's uh, fridge situation. I get a very decadent lifestyle that is still, uh, you know, I could have, instead of spending $3,000 on a fridge brand new at Home Depot and financing it on a credit card and costing myself $6,000 by the time it's paid off, I get the exact same benefit for $700. So uh, then I got to keep the other 80% of my money or whatever. This is, the, this is the whole mustachian philosophy is getting the benefits of the modern lifestyle while sacrificing the things, or not sacrificing, slicing out the things of the modern lifestyle that don't really bring us any more happiness. Like I do feel happier by having food stay fresh at home. So a fridge to me is actually a happiness booster. Yeah. But payments yeah. on the fridge are not. Well, I'm glad we did that diversion because I think there is this natural reaction to say, well, you know, what Mr. Money Mustache is telling me to do is deny my impulses. And what you're, what, what I hear you saying is not that, but more just don't be crazy. Right. Right. I mean, I also, besides, instead of having a 99 minivan, I could have like a 2016 Cadillac Escalade that I paid like $72,000 for. And right. it would carry exactly the same size of fridge that my, $3,000 van, which is pretty <laughs> luxurious, by the way. Still got like leather seats and Yeah, but dude, everything. you'd, you'd be all pimped out on the Escalade and, uh, everyone would be looking at you like, you know, Hey, this peacock has got it going on, right? Yeah. Or they might be thinking, what's he trying to compensate for? <laughs> or I don't, you know, I don't really understand, uh, fancy yeah. vehicles. I, I do. Be, I'm a total gearhead, but I, at the same time, I understand quality rather than peacock feathers, which is what right. I think some of these SUVs are are for because they're not they're not actually good engineering. I want to talk about debt, and I, I want to read a quote from your blog, and then I want you to react to it or expand on it. You say, "If you're still in debt, you need to get much more bold about wiping it out. Sure, you can do it slowly, but I recommend a more efficient path. Put on your walking shoes, start walking as much as you can, eight hours a day." Go straight to the most healthy and balanced eating regime and never deviate. Stay on it and let the forward progress accelerate your progress each day. Consumer debt and excessive amounts of body fat are virtually identical. I, I, I thought that was beautiful. And it, it's a great 
you know, it's a great metaphor between the two. Talk about how consumer debt is like body fat. Okay, well, there's a little bit, people are going to have to go read my article called um, Newsflash, Your Debt as an Emergency, because you missed a little bit of that, but it's basically yeah. at the beginning, I made a, I mentioned that um, you need to be bold about wiping out debt, just as if you were working on, up, you know, you woke up suddenly 100 pounds heavier than you are this yesterday, what would you do about it? It would be an emergency. So... Uh, Anyway, yeah, you become um, you become obsessive about it day and night, right? Yeah, so I think people we are trained to be complacent about debt because that's what the lenders want us to feel. They think, yeah, just make a payment, you know, everything. Life happens. You can't always pay your bills every month, but don't worry, we got you. Just make the minimum payment. We'll discharge you twenty four point nine percent and with some extra fees. So they try to, <laughs> and then we actually believe that. And like car manufacturers, are like only one ninety nine a month to buy this car, and people think, "Wow, I have one hundred ninety nine dollars. That's great for a Camaro." And then uh, it's completely the wrong way of thinking. Like debt is not a natural state. It's it's something that happens when you make a mistake. And this is I'm going to make an exception for a mortgage uh, for right. a house for a yeah. reasonable house, but everything else, debt for anything else is is well. <laughs> here I go again. Maybe for education in certain cases too, but for consumer stuff, it's always just nonsense. Like it's, you wait until you have the money to buy that thing. So you were trained the wrong way, but now it's time to wake up because Mr. Money Mustache told you to and uh, realize that it's draining your life energy. No matter what your goals are, there is no benefit of carrying consumer debt. So you have to stop buying anything else. Like I'm saying, go straight back to potatoes for dinner until that's gone. Like you're not going out to movies and making small payments on the debt. You're paying all the money to the debt. It's an emergency. That's kind of how I encourage people because otherwise you end up with with student loans when you're my age, like 41 years yeah, yeah. old, and you're still paying off this college degree that you finished at 21. Like it's just completely it's right. just ridiculous that, how long we carry it. That article is one of my favorites, um, the, the, the one on debt. Your debt is an emergency. And and could you tell a little bit the, the story about your friend in college who you made the like friendly loan to? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully uh, he doesn't recognize himself. Or if he does, he'll realize this is a humorous and happy story. Yeah, I thought but, it was a beautiful story. <laughs> and it was just our... I didn't realize that people had different attitudes towards debt. I always thought it was something you paid off right away. So I had extra money because I worked for about three or four years to save to pay for my first year of college. I worked all through high school. And so I had a bit of extra, paid for my tuition, and then I had some money in the to pay for my groceries for the rest of the year. Then my friends said, hey, I can't quite cover the tuition payment. Can I borrow like $2,000 or something like that, or maybe 1500 And I said, sure, I got way more than that in the bank account. Here you go. And he paid his tuition. And then we proceeded to go together in our friendly, like we were buddies, we did all the stuff together, and we were going to parties and everything. <laughs> yeah. But I noticed he was still buying stuff, you know, like clothes and alcohol at bars or more expensive stuff and and it right. took a while for him to pay me back and he's like oh, i almost got enough for you and then finally he did pay me back and he's a good guy we're still friends of course but i was just shocked i was like wow that's weird because why did he buy that other stuff when i wasn't paid back yet i guess right. it's we have different attitudes about the debt and then that was my first taste of that because i'd never borrowed any money before that point and then I had never lent any money before that point, so I, it was kind of an education to me in the different attitudes human have humans have towards debt. Well, and I I think the reason why that's such a powerful story is because it's not like with a bank, 
um, you know, or, or some like nameless, faceless entity that you owe money to. Th- this is a friend. And e- even with that uh, kind of moral aspect to the debt that you have, it's very natural for us as humans to, in a sense, like live for today or say, you know, these things are prerequisites, going out, buying new clothes, you know, all these other things. And and the mustachian approach is to say, no, your your debt is like this big, you know, glowing, blinking red light that should be, you know, causing you a lot of distress until you get rid of it. Right. And it goes away very quickly once you think about that. Yeah. So that's an immediate stress reduction in your life, which is an immediate happiness boost. So you're you're not sacrificing the shoes and the lattes and stuff like that. You're actually becoming more badass and then becoming happier very quickly. And then you still have the option to buy that stuff. But the cool part about this is that the training of withholding from your your, your desires a little bit, self-restraint, that carries over into the debt-free period. And suddenly you realize like, oh, maybe I can go without this item like i consider the uh the low-cost car in my driveway to be a great proof of my self-restraint just because i love cars so much but yet i don't have an expensive car even when i can afford one now without any debt and that feels really good the the fact that you can afford something and not buy it is much more of a happiness booster in my opinion than affording something and then caving in and buying it it's great it's even more great to get over your desires so you you go with the prudent car option in order to get out of debt. But then when you find yourself out of debt, you actually look at the more prudent car option and say, "Hey, I kind of I kind of like this." Yeah. It just yeah. feels right to not be wasteful. It's a art form in itself and then suddenly you look at the rest of your life and think, "Hey, I could be more efficient in this other way too and it keeps making me happier and I feel like I'm I'm being smart with my resources." And this is why humans have taken over the planet in the first place is because we were originally very smart with our resources. We knew how to use every part of the animal. We knew how to use nature to make shelters. This is really a very rewarding human activity. Once you get into it, they've kind of tried to train it out of us. But if you take it back for yourself, this is what really makes us happy is solving these problems. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the the life that you live. And you've, you've alluded to it a little bit, but you know, one of the things that you recently published on your blog was your, basically your P and L statement, your, your list of expenses for the year. And I think most people, if they heard someone lived off of $24,000 a year would think, you know, Oh my gosh, you're below the poverty line. You're living a destitute life. You know, certainly that's not a life that's going to include things like eating out or going to the movies or, uh, you know, anything like that. Talk a little bit about what the life looks like once you reach, once you're further along that badass scale where you've, you've got the mortgage paid off, you've got the debt paid off, you're, you're living with prudent habits. What does that feel like? Well, it feels really great, of course, because you can buy whatever you want and there's no monetary pressures. So everything is complete freedom. Um, so just to avoid people being scared off by the $24,000 number, because that doesn't include any house payments, you'd have to pretty much double that right away if you're trying to compare that to what my expense statement would look like if I did have a mortgage, which is most people do. And then it also doesn't include any saving because that's not really spending. So really, if you made $70,000 with a mortgage on a house of my cost level, then that's about the lifestyle that I live. 
Yeah. Um, the 24 that I spend, because I don't have these unwanted expenses, it all goes to fun stuff, like really, really good food, travel, that's sometimes a little bit over the top, but it's, it's like I said, conscious ridiculousness, like occasionally renting an expensive house on a beach or whatever, and getting a nice bike, keeping our bikes in great shape, and I don't know, it's, a, it's everything we could want, um, I can't really yeah. imagine. I'm I'm willing to spend more money if it's if it were to actually bring us more happiness, and we've dabbled in that here and there. It just seems to not add up to that much as long as your desires aren't super consumer based. Did you see the movie The Big Short? No, people have been talking about that a lot in my circles, even though it's around for a while. And uh, so yeah. I started reading the book instead, and I thought I would oh. finish the book. I'm in the middle of it right now, or at the beginning, I guess, and then. Then I'll watch the movie after that. The book is fantastic. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. it maybe not. Maybe it'll make you, you know, it, it's also really frustrating. There's this one scene in the movie where the Steve Carell character is aware of how crazy the the subprime mortgage crisis is. And he's walking down the street. He's talking to his wife. And he actually says to his wife, he goes, I feel like I'm in an Enya video. And all these people here are walking around like everything is happy and wonderful. And they're just completely unaware of how it's all, you know, screwed up. I, I just wonder for you, you know, you, you look around and you see people buying hundreds of thousands of dollars of house with, with no down payment. You, you see people getting subprime auto loans, you know, and they're stretched out over 84 months. You know, you know, the average net worth of a, of an American is, is negative. Uh, you know, we, we have these huge credit card debts with, you know, 20 plus percent interest rates. Is, is there ever a point where you look at that and say, this, this is too insane for me to comprehend? You know, or I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to be a, a, a human in America today because of the, the, the insanity that surrounds me. Uh, I think you get used to it. I, I certainly uh, acknowledge that we are bizarre in our behavior, but because of that earlier comment I made about, thinking of us as a species with these social needs, you can really just, it's like watching a nature video when I walk down the street and I'm like, oh, look at these interesting apes just like me, but they're really in, soaked up in this behavior. You know, I feel almost like I'm a scientist watching my own species. Uh, but at the same time, it's not all negative because first of all, there are many people who see it the same way that we do, which is, it's joyful in a way. Like it's great that we've even made this prosperity for ourselves. And sure, they're some of us are prone to getting sucked into persuasion to do stuff that's not in their best interests. But in the grand scale of humanity, we're still in a pretty great place. So my idea right now with this activism through the blog is just to try to nudge us a little bit more, like apply those same principles of persuasion in the other direction where we focus on happiness instead of status through material acquisitions. And uh, it's just going to get even better. So it's, it is crazy, but as long as your friends, your immediate friends aren't crazy, you're all set. And I hang around with people who don't borrow money for SUVs, so it's, it's all okay. Yeah. <laughs> How important is that to have a community? At MrMoneyMustache.com, you've got some great forums. There's a lot of people who talk about this stuff. When you post things, there's a, there's a big conversation that goes on. How important is it to have physical friends near you that think like you? And how important is it to have this broader community of, of people talking about this stuff? Well, it's, it probably depends on what kind of personality type you have. Some people are introverted and they like to be at home and 
and maybe they have like a spouse or something, a partner that's that's with them and they don't need a lot of physical friends, maybe a few, and then they can bond through the internet. Whereas other people, I'm a bit more extroverted and I love being in crowds of people that have a lot of the same values and we have fun together. So in my case, I'd say it's pretty important and I think everybody, introvert or extrovert, will benefit by being around more people of this type. And we are everywhere. I mean, even just on the um, the Mustachian situation, the blog, you can go to any city and, and host, call a meetup and hundreds of people will come. So it's not yeah. that rare to um, to have beliefs that aren't entirely based on traditional consumerism. I'm interested in your reaction to this. Let me give you a little bit from my side, because I started writing Strong Towns because I thought the world was crazy. Did you start and, before me? I forget. Um, I started at the end of 2008. Okay, so, yeah, way ahead of me. I was in 11. Okay, yeah. I, I went through the housing crisis and that 2008 election, and I thought, the whole world is nuts. My wife has this saying, um, and <laughs> she says this to me about being crabby. She goes, if the whole world is seems crabby to you, it's probably you that's crabby. <laughs> that's an excellent <laughs> so, point. Yep. yep. She's, very, she's a brilliant person. So I, I kind of took that and said, well, if the whole world seems crazy to me, maybe I'm, maybe I'm the crazy one. And so I, I started writing what turned into Strong Towns. And, and I think the thing that I am most grateful for now in, in 2016 is that the things that I kind of thought were crazy or that I thought maybe I was like alone in this world. Like you say, I've, I've found thousands and thousands of people now who are there with me, who support this, who, who want to see something different. What has this been like for you as a person to start blogging, start writing about this and have such an overwhelmingly positive reaction from people who, who want to be mustachians, who want to live this badass life. What, what has that done for you individually? Well, as you might imagine, it's quite a bonus. You know, I was already retired for six years before I started the blog. And so I was just going about my normal being a dad, raising kids, having friends in the neighborhood type thing. And everybody knew my deal. They knew I was retired and, and into carpentry and and not being too wasteful uh, from an environmental perspective. Starting the blog was, everyone says, you start a blog, no one's going to read it. But I just did it anyway because I like writing. And to have people start reading it and then start reading it in huge numbers and then all this news stuff, um, it seems like another, like I often think I'm going to wake up. I'm like, wow, that was a pretty amazing dream. Because <laughs> like, why are all these people listening to this crap that I'm typing into the computer? Um, but I'm also really happy about it because it's... Um, I think I've learned that there's no benefit to fame. Fame is actually kind of a negative thing, but personal connections, there've been a few people that have made very close personal connections through with the blog. And that's been a really, really nice thing. And so there's just a lot more people to talk to now. And it also, from personal level, it makes me feel like I'm not wasting my life as much because I'm, I have this nice feedback from people like, Hey, you've helped us, my family, make our life better too. So you feel like, yay, because the, really the happiest thing you can do in life is to be useful to other people, to help them be happy there themselves. So right. on a personal level, that's how the blog has made my life more happy. You know, blogging and podcasting too are very intimate kind of ways to communicate with people. And I, I do feel, I mean, for me, 
I feel this connection to you because of the blogging and because, you know, I, I read the stuff that you write, you know, for, for you, this process of writing, of figuring things out, is it been an exploration for you? Is it been something that's kind of helped you? I know occasionally you'll say this is, you know, liberated some thought in your brain. What is that? What's that? What's the process that keeps you blogging? That's a good point. I started out originally in a, with the idea of preaching. And if you read the early articles, it's like, you must do this. Here's what everybody's <laughs> doing wrong. Yeah. And some people say those are the best articles, but I think um, it got better later when I when I ran out of original lessons, or there's more and more, but then it's more like reflection, like all these people write back, uh, many of them who are better at whatever you're writing about than you are, so you can learn and increase your skills at that. Like for example, something about cars or something about physical fitness, all these different subjects I like to write about. So it's nice to um, go back and forth and then you realize where your own shortcomings are and you can constantly be inspired to be better. Um, for me, I really I find that I'm being forced to live a better life than I otherwise would because now I know I'm writing about it. So in a virtual sense, people are watching, so I can't screw it up. <laughs> right. <And> that's a really <laughs> great motivation to yeah. lead a better life. And then, and of course, the leading the better life part is what makes you a happier person. It's strange every day when people will say, you know, I'm an expert in this or an expert in that because I I do find so much more value in the feedback that I get from people. And the, I mean, I've learned more from the readers than I think I've ever shared with them. I'm assuming you get that same sense as well. Yeah, it's definitely true, especially because for whatever reason, a lot of the readers who show up in Mr. Money Mustache are these really extremely smart people, like founders of big, successful companies that really right. are uni uniquely talented in one way or another, or people who are PhD or whatever, well-educated specialists or extremely badass people who can just do anything. Um, they're, they're all there and then they're generously sharing their time with me and realizing how non-advanced I am in every way, which is a pretty handy. Um, and then they share with the readers too. Sometimes I'll publish guest posts from other people or yeah. they'll share stuff in comments or they'll start their own blog and I can help send people to those blogs. Um, it's really great to have a collection. It's almost like a human library where the human beings are the books that you can check out and everybody's right. coming in to donate their own human skills to the library. What are you working on? You're retired. You've got a lot of time to, to think, right? What's the, uh, what's the new thought that's rolling around in your brain that uh, is, um, you know, you're trying to discern and pull out? Well, my biggest chunk of my day is still always being a dad. So I'm not really Mr. Money Mustache, really I'm dad. That takes a huge amount, especially with homeschooling. Like my son is always around, we're always doing things together. Um, that really limits the rest of the stuff and in a good way too, because this is that was my goal. That's why I quit working is because I wanted to take 20 years off and raise a kid and then go back to personal pursuits. But then secondarily after that, I really, really like the physical world. So I do a lot of building things. I'm currently building this studio thing. It's an extremely meditative thing for me to be hanging out often by myself with just good music on a good stereo outside and just build, just build. You're climbing around and you're like figuring problems and attaching things together and designing. That's answer number two. And then number three, the smallest part, which is this Mr. Money Mustache blog, even though it affects the most people, I really want to find ways to change society, which means studying 
human nature and psychology and what makes things persuasive and what makes us tick, and then applying that through writing and appearances on things like the Strong Towns podcast and stuff. And it's just a long-running experiment and see what works. And in general, or over long term, I'm hoping that this can have a pretty big impact, especially if I get some more of these aforementioned super smart people helping yeah. me. Yeah. Well, you you are a fascinating person. You uh, are, are one of my very super smart people. You know, we all—I think we all add to each other in a way. I'm inspired by you, and I know a lot of other people are. And and I did not want to go through this Strong Citizens Week without getting the the person who I think kind of personifies uh, the strong town spirit. You know, individually, and, and that's you. So, Mister Money Mustache Pete, it's been fantastic to talk to you. And anytime you want to come on, you just let me know, and we'll chat. Thanks a lot. And likewise, I uh, hear that you actually go to towns in order to strengthen them. So uh, if you haven't been to Longmont, maybe we should have an event with you here that I can help get everybody rounded up for. I can't tell you how excited that that would make me. Yeah, we we definitely should make that happen. I've got a couple things in Colorado that are brewing. And uh, if that comes through, I I promise you I'll reach out to you and we'll figure out a way to make something happen. Yeah, Longmont is a, already a bit of a strong town, so we're a ripe field for planting. That's fantastic. Well, for all of you that want to start growing your own money mustache and live financially free through badassity, head on over to MrMoneyMustache.com. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chuck. Yep. Take care, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.